up on today's show. Exactly. I mean, if if I had, I was thinking about this. Had I done that personally in the video, even one of the clients commented, you took this pause and you waited to give out this rebel yell. And I don't give out that yell very often, but when I do, something special is happening. And the whole screen lights up. It's like the bass dropping at the club. And the whole screen just starts moving. Broadcasting from the Taz and Lake Lodge studios, this is the Finding Fins Fishing Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? It generates something like two point. $4 billion. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I, I knew you were going to go there. Walleyes relating to deep mud where there's schools of bait fish. Today's show is brought to you by Haybale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Tazan Lake Lodge in northwest Saskatchewan. For trophy lake trout in northern pike, go to tazanlake.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. Now we're going to talk to Jason Durham from the Go Fish Guide Service around the Park Rapids area. Jason, how's it going? It's going great. I tell you what, Brett, I just got off the water. Like I literally ran into the house. You and I had been in communication, but one of the very few days up here this year that I've had to deal with weather and the challenge of weather. And as a fishing guide, you know, that throws off your entire schedule. So uh, we had planned to talk a little bit earlier and it was a beautiful afternoon. as perfect conditions as you could ever ask for. But, I mean, I was running hot at the end, and I've got people swinging crappies into me. I'm cleaning fish in the boat, and they're still <laughs> fishing. And, uh, and I just kept – I kind of a little bit – I mean, I, want, I always want people to catch fish, but just a little bit. I uh, wanted them to slow down so <laughs> the catch – the capture part of it would stop, and I could uh, finitely be done – and uh, get to chatting with you. Well, as a fishing guy, don't ever tell people you want you want your guests to slow down on on the catch. No, 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 no. I'd never, 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 never do that. But they were they. Well, the one thing is to being a fishing guide is that there's there's limits within our state of Minnesota, sure. and they're very liberal. Okay, and there's a big difference between what is legal and what is ethical. And for what they needed, we were at that point. Mm. So go. it was okay. It was okay to come to that that number of fish that we had and say we're good. Well, I appreciate the dedication of of wrapping the day up quickly so you could come be on the show today. I, I appreciate that. It's dedication. <laughs> I wouldn't say we wrapped it up quickly by any means. Uh, I was just a little bit late to the uh, yeah. to the office here. So no worries. I'm glad it was a good day on the water, man. It's been. Uh, you're up around that Park Rapids area. I'm down by Lac Parle. It's been so hot down here, and we've had some storms recently, too. Uh, and, you know, I've been blown off the water a couple of times lately. There's been days where I, was, I looked outside, and, and I'm not guiding, of course. I just want to fish. I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be out there today. <laughs> you know, and we actually did film a segment for Prairie Sportsman last week. And it was uh, on Thursday of last week, prior to the 4th of July weekend, it was so hot. The water temperature, Jason, was 86 degrees out there that day. And I didn't wear sunscreen. And, and I'm a big proponent <laughs> of wearing sunscreen. But we were fishing for trout. And, Jason, you, you know this. You, 
when you're especially when you're fishing for something as finicky as as a trout species can be you try to stack all the odds in your favor as much as possible so i, I try to eliminate bugs bug spray from the boat I try not to use bug spray and i try not to use sunscreen so much so i was like well i'll just get out there and we'll catch a couple fish quick and then i'll slather on the 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 sunscreen you know after we get some good fish on camera well let's just say we fished for seven hours and by the first fish we brought in the boat was after six and a half hours of being out there in uh, mid 90 degree temperatures. And uh, so I, I'm peeling a little bit still from that trip out there. Well, what I envision when you're describing all of this to me is that scene from River Runs Through It, where he takes the guy fishing and he's hung over and you know, <laughs> the guy doesn't have sunscreen. He just gets burned his legs and his arms and everything. We all know living in Minnesota that, in the summer, there is that point. It usually comes once a year where you get burned so badly that it is painful to sleep and it's a good reminder to apply the sunblock and everything. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this so long and you have two that you know better. I know. But sometimes you make that mistake. I've made the mistake plenty of times. I've been really diligent this year about sun protection and uh, talking about that heat, boy, that is just brutal to fish in. When you get out there at seven o'clock in the morning, it's already high, high humidity and uh, no wind. And that's that's a big difference. A couple weeks ago, we had a string of 90 degree days and really our water temperature didn't change at all because we had 30 mile an hour wind. So all that water is mixing together, that cooler water from you know, out in the deep. Um, but this week, yeah, we had uh, an increase of about nine degrees in, mm. I don't know, the last probably eight days or so. So when you're talking about chasing and predicting uh, what a, a cold-blooded animal is going to do and you've changed its environment all, all around it and, and its temperature, yeah, you're going to have a few days where the fishing is definitely a little off. What I, the analogy that I always use for others is, you know, when your core temperature changes just a few degrees – we don't feel like eating. We don't feel like going out and exercising. You're pretty sluggish. Same thing happens to fish. And sometimes it's just a matter of finding a different body of water to target or uh, just waiting a couple of days until things cool down a bit. But I, I feel like eating all the time and I don't like working out all the time. So <laughs> I don't know if I just have my thermostat set too high or what, but um, you know, and I want, Jason, I want to talk more about fishing in, in conditions like this when it's as hot as it is, but I just want to back up one second because I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or, or what, but I, I'm becoming more and more concerned about just taking care of myself despite wanting to eat all the time and not working out. Uh, but when it comes to say hunting, I'm a big proponent of wearing hearing protection all the time and finding ways to still be able to hear what you're doing and protect your hearing because you don't get that hearing back. And my dad has had bouts of melanoma. So when it comes to being out there and exposure in the sun, if I don't wear sunscreen or my dad wants me to wear a, like a big hat with a big wide brim all the way around on it, if I don't, he lets me know and he doesn't stop and, and for good reason. So I, I wear the long sleeves, the lighter shirts with the long sleeves as much as possible. And I will use sunscreen the majority of the time. And it's funny, I remember when I, you know, when I, when I started to get into the fishing industry, the business side of things a little bit more, and you'd go to different events, you could always pick out who the fishing guides were because they all had the sunglass lines, the, <laughs> the sunglass tan yeah, lines. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It looks like they're wearing sunglasses even when they're not. <laughs> right. uh, you know, one thing for me, I don't wear sunglasses in the boat a lot. Hmm. Um, I do at times for sure, just for eye protection. And that's a big thing, avoiding hooks and, and things like that. But uh, that safety part of it too, 
you know, I'll give you an example. We don't use a lot of crankbaits. We simply don't. And part of it is it does go back to that safety aspect of things where when you're handling fish that are aggressive and you've got a lot of hooks flying around, um, eye protection is a must, protecting your hands. I mean, I'm so blessed. I've been guiding for 28 years. I've never had a hook buried in me, knock on wood, and I hope that never happens. And it will one day. Um, but then talking about the sun too, and just being diligent about sunblock. And like, I've, I've got the shirt I wore guiding today that not only does it protect you from the sun's long sleeve and everything, and I have some with hoods, um, but that it helps cool you too. The, the technology and the materials that they use now can help wick away the moisture, but you have to be aware of that too, because you're always losing, um, you know, hydration. So you have to drink a lot of fluids when you're out there. And there's times where I'm even reminding clients in the boat, you know, you should probably have some water or Gatorade or whatever it is. And I've always got extra on board too, because and, and you don't want somebody to have those effects. Right. And there is water and beer, right? Um, I've, <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure. No, it is very important to be drinking water out there or something with some electrolytes because it's so easy to get exactly. de dehydrated. But, and then I, on my list of questions that I was going to ask you here, I did have a safety question about gear that you wear in the boat. Uh, do you always, do you always guide barefoot? When <laughs> I, <laughs> I do guide barefoot sometimes. Sometimes I do, but, uh, I wear sandals a lot. Uh, usually it's a covered toe, but not always. Um, it, it totally depends. It's nice to have, I, I just got a new pair of shoes. I found them on Amazon. I have no clue what brand they are. It's not a name brand, but it's a water shoe. And remember years ago, like when we were kids, they would have water shoes that you could wear in salt water. And it almost looked more like a sock. Mm -hmm. Well, now those shoes look more like a tennis shoe, but they're mesh. It helps a lot with uh, biting black flies, for instance, but you can walk in the water and they've got good drains on them and everything. Um, I did have one time a uh, really interesting uh, thing happened to me. I was, I was guiding for northerns and muskies, and we had caught a lot of northern pike that day. And I felt like there was a rock on, in the heel of my sandal. And from walking in the water so much, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary. So I reached my hand down to, to kind of get it out. And I pulled my hand up, and here I've got a single tooth from a northern pike Ooh. and a whole bunch of blood. Ooh. So a tooth had actually broken off from the fish gotten into my sandal and cut me in fact if you look at my social media accounts the picture's on there we'll put so it we'll what put an it anomaly we'll show it here in the video too sure. and uh th that doesn't feel good i've been cut by plenty of pike i can uh, did it keep continue to bleed then or did, were you able to get it to stop well that's the thing with with those northern pike and musky teeth if you get cut by them uh, they're so sharp that you you bleed quite a bit. Right. So you really have to be uh, careful about cleaning out that wound too. Any wound that you get out on the water because you get that fish slime in there and it can get infected very, very quickly. And a lot of people, you know, kind of poo-poo that and they go, well, you know, my, my hand might be sore, what might not have the flexibility and range of motion for a couple of days, but it could actually turn into something much worse. So you always want to have a first aid kit with, I've always got one in my boat and trust me, we use it quite a bit. With these warm temperatures too, uh, Jason, I've been seeing a lot of the, the people that guide for muskies out there say, hey, it's, it's too hot for muskie fishing right now. Yeah. I mean, you, you, look at, you can really look at that for most species sure. of fish. You look at walleyes, you know, where they're moving out into deeper water and pulling them out from, you know, 30 plus feet of water. Well, then you've got a whole nother issue with the barrel trauma, not mm -hmm. just the water temperature. And really, you know, any of the fish that you catch this time of year, the water temperature does have an effect. 
you know, a couple things to keep in mind is, you know, number one, what you're measuring in your boat is surface temperature. Um, and then giving them a rest, playing the fish quickly, getting them back in the water, not keeping them out of the water for an elongated period of time. Um, a lot of times, like with muskies, the best place for them to be is really in the net and just resting there for a minute before you uh, let them swim off. But again, not handling them. You don't want them, you know, dr- you don't want to take a picture and have somebody drop it in the boat. That would be the absolute worst thing ever. So, yeah, yeah. we're... Uh, we're, we're, we're not, we're not uh, going hard on deep walleyes right now. We're not going hard on, you know, uh, muskies in this hot, hot weather. But It'd be, you know, everyone's going to complain about Mille Lacs being closed anyway, but this, this closure is probably really good for it this year based on how hot it is right now. It really is because you're going to see a lot of mortality because yeah. of those factors. Yeah, well, we could we could dedicate a whole different show to that topic, and we'll save that for another day. But let's go back to muskies a little bit because we shared a video on the Sporting Journal Radio Facebook page of a pretty interesting muskie encounter that you had recently. Absolutely unbelievable. So a lot of times when we go out and fish muskies, when clients want to fish muskies, sometimes they want to do the traditional, you know, giant lures and, and heavy, heavy equipment, and we don't always do that. So sometimes we'll go out and we'll throw a a small spinner and and the lakes in our immediate area, you actually do better using small baits than you do with the traditional musky lures. Um, And so I kind of figured out this bite that was going well using essentially a Lindy Rigger live bait rig with 50 pound fluorocarbon, a single hook and like a seven or eight inch sucker minnow. And we had just been cracking big northerns doing this, but moving slow and just letting the minnow do all the work. I mean, it's walleye fishing for, for bigger predators. Sure. And um, uh, last week I had a, a woman in the boat who caught her first muskie ever, which was a 36-inch spot. Beautiful. Untouched. Had never, you know, been hooked before. It was gorgeous. Um, and then two days later, we had quite a surprise where she uh, hooked a northern. She actually didn't realize it immediately. Uh, she thought she was stuck on the bottom at first. Um, and then the line started moving out slowly towards deep water. So I knew we were on to, I knew what was going on here. I always have two nets in the boat, a, a smaller net that would be more for like walleye and smaller pike. But then I've got the big musky net in there too. And so I grabbed the big net. And when I first see this northern pike, I'm confused because you're, it's a two, two footer. It's 24 inches, but it's sideways in the water. So it just looks so abnormal and I can only see the head and the tail, and then I see the head of this giant muskie. So the muskie had actually T-boned the sure. northern pike. And, and this has happened, I don't know how many times in my fishing career, and, and so many listeners probably have had this happen too, where a big northern or a muskie has grabbed the fish that they've been, been fighting and initially hooked. Well, just by the grace of the fishing gods and uh, some patience and good timing, uh, a very skilled angler on the rod, uh, I slipped that net under both fish and we landed six feet, 72 inches of fish in one swipe. <laughs> and I tell you what, I, in the video of it, and it's been viewed thousands and thousands of times already, but in the video, even one of the clients commented, you took this pause and you waited to give out this rebel yell. And I don't give out that yell very often, but when I do something special has happened and I took it and it was just a, a split two seconds. And the reason was I actually had to take a deep breath and comprehend what we had just done because to actually get that muskie and northern in the net, 
just doesn't happen. It's a, a strike of lightning. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, we we grew up with a cabin on a, on Bone Lake in Northwest Wisconsin, which is a, a musky lake over there in Northwest Wisconsin. And we we fish primarily crappies over there. And I don't know how many times in the spring we'd have a muskie come up and grab one of the crappies that we'd caught. Usually, then they let go when you're next to the boat. Um, I think maybe one time one of the guys netted one uh, was able to put it in the boat. But usually they let it go when when you get it to the boat. But that's pretty exciting on especially on crappie gear to be able to uh, fight a muskie for a while like that. And I've seen it up in Saskatchewan, up at Tazan up there uh, a couple of years ago. I think one of the guys caught a, caught a small northern, and then I think it was like a 46-incher came up and would not let go, and they ended up putting it in the net and uh, landing both fish. So that's, that's an amazing, amazing experience, especially with a client well, I, like that, Jason. Right, exactly. I mean, if, if I had, I was thinking about this, had I done that personally by myself, that would have been one thing to go and tell people about it. To have her son jump up in the bow and capture this all yeah. on video, that was absolutely unbelievable. And and again, you're talking about the warm water and everything. We got such a fast shot of that of that fish, that specimen, a 48 inch muskie, 24 inch, just over 24 inch pike. Mm. And um, I wouldn't let the client hold the fish. A lot of times when we catch muskies, I don't let the client hold the fish. Number one, because you don't want that fish, you know, dropped on the floor and protection for the fish but also for protection for the angler. We were talking about not only sun protection, but there's fish protection too. And they are so strong that if you've got a, a hand under them and they thrash one time, I mean, you can wreck your digits really, really fast. And I, I've had that happen. Anybody that fishes muskies and big pike, they've had it happen at some point. And uh, it's definitely something you want to avoid. That's a tough one, you know, and that's an important point to bring up. And up at Tazan, again, up in Saskatchewan, a lot of times that's our policy where we'll hold the fish or the guides will hold the fish for the yeah. clients. And a couple of times the clients are like, hey, hey, man, I want a picture of myself holding that right. fish. And it's like, right. this is a 50-pound lake trout, you know, at, at yeah. times or, you know, upper 40s-inch pike. They don't realize all the time just how hard it is to hold on. Those lake trout are so powerful. I mean, so are obviously big pike and muskie, but those big, chunky, fat girthy lake trout you know just yeah. holding one up the dead weight itself can, can be difficult but once they start flexing uh, their muscles a little bit uh, it, it's important to know how to hold a fish like that well you know the great thing is that uh, you know you'll have all these especially social media people that are uh, critiquing every photo yeah. oh you're holding your arms out you're holding it close to the camera when you get a big fish like that you can't there is no choice <laughs> to right. hold it out to the camera because it's just not physically possible. I've argued with people about that. Oh, you're holding the way up for the camera. I'm like, yeah. it's 50 pounds, man. There's, right. there's, I'm not strong enough to hold it out that far. No, no. Get a 60 inch sturgeon and you're not, you're not long arming it towards the camera. That's for <laughs> that's sure. Right. Man, I'll tell you what though. I, I grew up with, with crappies and bass and, and pike and uh, kind, of, kind of into walleyes mostly now for the most part here in Minnesota anyway, but anytime I go north, it's trout and particularly lake trout, or if I, I can get up into Saskatchewan and get up into those big, big pike. And I, I'm a freak about it now just because how aggressive those fish are. You know, we've, we've caught some of those big lake trout and you'll pull, they'll try to regurgitate a fish as you bring them up and you'll pull, you know, a 20 inch fish out of this thing. And it, it just ate it. And then it went and hit a six inch crankbait you know, or bigger, or uh, we've got some 15 inch savage baits, you know, or whatever they are that we've used up there. Those fish are so aggressive. Sometimes 
I'm setting you up here, Jason. Sometimes I think you could just put a plain hook down on that, down on the bottom <laughs> of the lake down there and catch yourself a northern pike. We were talking about firsts for this year. I've had so many firsts this year. I mean, from uh, this week, catching a Barbie rod. Uh, we caught the same pike four times in one day. I thought the week prior <laughs> where we caught the same largemouth three times in one week, I thought that was a big deal until we catch the same pike four times in one day. But when I'm demonstrating uh, to the clients how to use a live bait rig, and we're walleye fishing at the time, I drop it down with no bait on the hook. And we're talking about a small, you know, number four hook and just an eighth ounce weight. I drop it down to demonstrate how to put the line in your finger, how when you get a bite, you let it out. And I lift up my rod and I've got a fish on. And so I start <laughs> fighting this thing and the people go, yay, you got one. And I go, no, this isn't supposed to happen like this. And here I caught a 27 inch Northern with no bait, with just a plain hook. That's yeah. awesome. I've, and, I've and done people that. People ask me too. People ask, they said, well, was it a painted hook? Was it red? Was it mm. this? Maybe it emulated a bug. I don't know. The pike didn't tell me, but I'll tell you this. It was hook colored and there was nothing on it. That's funny. I don't know how many times when, you know, you'll reel up and you're, you'll let your, let your rod kind of hang over the edge of the boat and your lure might be dangling at the surface of the water and you're, I don't know, maybe you're taking a picture of a different fish or you're figuring something out. And I've had pike come up and hit those lures and try to rip your rod into the water a, a bunch of times. They're just so much fun. So, so aggressive. And you said a couple of things. I just want to back the truck up here for just one second. You caught a Barbie rod. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, the person in the boat did, but they, you know, they're bringing in their line and they've got another line on there, which happens a lot. Sure. You know, people have a line that breaks and, and it's good to get that monofilament out of the lake or, mm -hmm. or braid or whatever it is. Um, and I said, well, keep pulling. Let's see if there's something on the end. And I was, I was actually thinking maybe there's a fish on here. Right. Uh, but then he got to the small crappie jig and kept pulling. And here it was a Barbie fishing rod. Some kid <laughs> is on the shoreline crying. I know it. I know it. That they're <laughs> crying because they lost their Barbie rod. And there's some parent that's upset because of their $20 is gone. Uh, but I still have the rod. Kind of a special deal. Yeah, well, and I don't want to keep telling stories about Saskatchewan, but we had a guy last year caught line like that and was bringing it up. And let's see if I can remember. He No, he, he snagged a, a branch, and there was line wrapped on the branch, and the line went off the branch, and then there was like a 35-pound lake trout or something still oh, wow. still attached. So he reeled in the, the stick, which was attached to a fish. It was kind of a, a wild story. But uh, let's get back to what you were talking about. You caught the same, what, what about catching the same bass a couple of times? How do you know it was the same fish? So I get asked that all the time when I say, well, we caught the same bass three times in one week. It was twice in one day and then once uh, two days later. And how would you be able to determine that it was the same fish? Well, it was blind in one eye. And when, when fish become blind in, in, in one of their eyes, or both of them even, uh, there's a couple different ways that they can look. One might be really kind of milky, um, and one is kind of like, almost like you, how would I describe it? Imagine an egg that you're going to fry and you prick the yolk and it kind of runs into uh, the white of the egg. Sometimes the fish eyeball looks like that. That's exactly what it looked like. And it had a very defined black spot on its side. Uh, so it was really easy to tell. Um, and then with the pike, it was kind of the same thing. It was a, a very easily identifiable mark on it. 
And then as we kept catching it, you know, you could see the hook marks in its mouth and everything, which, you know, somewhat indicates to me that that lake, or maybe it wasn't even the lake. I was thinking that maybe the lake had uh, a lack of forage, but maybe it was that the pike just really wasn't that good of a predator and was in a spot that really had no food. So as our baits come by, it goes, all right, this, <laughs> this time, this time is going to be the time that it's real. Fool me once. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Pike. Oh gosh, those fish are just so, so aggressive. They're so much fun. Um, and, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter what kind of lure you throw at them, but sometimes it's nice to take some of those lures that you got and you can do a little custom work to it. I see you've done some custom lure painting this year, too, oh, yeah. Jason. <laughs> uh, yeah, custom lure painting. Uh, it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, you can find that, too, uh, <laughs> on social media. I definitely don't go overboard. Boy, there there are some incredible artists out there though that that yeah. add some really detailed you know imaging to those lures. And, uh, I don't go that far. A, a single red <laughs> a single red spot is going to do a lot. That's funny. I so we did a segment for Prairie Sportsman a couple of years ago on the Twisted Sisters uh, decoy carvers. Yeah. They, oh yeah. They do paint paint decoys for spearing in the winter, and uh, they had a theme for a lot of their decoys. Uh, they had a lot of dots, polka dots or dots or, or whatever. And you could see little little dots on all their decoys. And I was like, wow, that's kind of their signature look is all these dots. So I, you know, I sat them down and I was asking them this, these in-depth questions. And we were getting serious and technical about their decoy carving abilities. And I said, well, I see all these dots. Why the dots? And they said, because they're easy. <laughs> was, Keep it simple. Yeah, it makes Keep sense. It simple. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's worked for them. Let's talk uh, a little bit about fishing right now, Jason. I know you do a lot of uh, fishing reports around that Park Rapids area on social media, too. Give us a little little fishing report right now. If people wanted to go out and, uh, say, target crappies right now, what would you tell them? Well, we actually were crappie fishing this afternoon, and the bite was good. One of the big things with, I, I don't care what species that you're going after, so many people say, well, we got to get out there early in the morning or go you know, right when the sun's hitting the trees in the evening, you know, you do see an increase in animal activity typically at those times, but not always. Our really good bite recently has been middle of the day. Really? And a lot of people have difficulty understanding, like you can't, and they'll tell you, you can't go out on a lake when it's dead calm, 90 degrees on the week of the 4th of July, and you've got skiers going around and jet skis, you can't go out and catch walleyes or, or else you have to go so deep that, I mean, you're going to be fishing 35 or 40 feet of water. That is not true. Not, not whatsoever. I can almost guarantee you that right around the 4th of July, and I could set my calendar to it, that I'm going to be able to go out in the middle of the day and fish relatively shallow water. And I'm talking like eight to 10 feet of water and in right at noon and catch walleyes. And it's because they're u utilizing vegetation. Mm. And that's the big key. You've got the forage up there already. And so they're using that, the, the weed cover um, to protect them from the sun. And they are active and they are feeding. So most people gravitate towards deep water. They don't mm -hmm. do well midday and then they go, uh, it's impossible. Move faster. That's always a, a advantageous. You know, pull spinners, use a half a crawler. Sometimes you can even use like a uh, Berkeley gulp where you're only using a piece of, piece of crawler. And uh, move at a pretty good clip, you know, right around a mile, 1.2 miles an hour, 1.5 miles an hour. And uh, keep that spinner going right above the weeds. And those fish will come up and just chow it. They'll hit hard. 
So that's that's one thing you run into when you try to find those fish in the weeds is you're constantly getting caught in those weeds. You just try to stay right above them? We do that, and then we also don't use a traditional type of sinker. We're using a, a bullet weight like you'd use for a Texas-rigged worm because it just moves through the weeds so much better. I, I, when I use that sinker, I always like to put a bead between the sinker and the swivel. Uh, just to protect that knot a little bit, because if you have even just a little jagged edge on that sinker, it can wear on your line over time. Um, so that's helpful. But uh, yeah, it scoots through those weeds really, really well. And you have to you have to have the mindset too that you're going to catch weeds. You're simply going to catch weeds. That's the habitat that the fish are relative to, and you just pull them off and, and do it all over again. But also. You have to remember that you do want to take those weeds off. That if you feel extra weight on your on your rod, don't just go. Ah, oh, it's probably. Nah, I don't think there is. Check it. Get them off of there. It's going to increase increase your odds exponentially. And the other thing is small fish. You're going to run into the sunfish. You're going to run into the rock bass. You're going to catch a lot of fish. You're going to go through a lot of bait if you're using night crawlers, live night crawlers, for instance. But you almost have to think of those small fish, those auxiliary fish, as weeds that you just got to take them off and put them back in and keep going and do it again. I had Garrett Sphere on the show, um, gosh, boy, I bet it's about a month or two ago now or so. And then we did some filming for Prairie Sportsman with him too, going after some of those big bluegills. Uh, you mentioned the liberal limits that we have here in Minnesota. How do you feel about this quality bluegill initiative? I think it's way overdue. I, I think it's imperative that we do this to protect some of those bigger fish. You hear people talking about it all the time. And I've, in my career of, of angling, in, in my lifetime, I've seen many, many lakes that have had a huge decline in the overall size, of just average size of those fish. And um, even what would be deemed, you know, a keepable fish. But, and, and part of it is our mindset years ago, where we went, okay, you gotta have a fish that's eight, 10 ounces, or even bigger than that, the bigger, the better, and the more that you can get, that's what your goal was every day. And now it's, it's changed a lot and it's shifting. Understanding that conservation is so important and getting that genetic strain back and protecting some of those big fish. I got on a lake this spring that had a, a five fish limit already implemented on it. And those bluegills, I mean, to see the client's faces as they pulled them in, they were like little kids again because they remembered they had experienced that before we were catching these giant, you know, plate sized bluegills. And even, even though, you know, they've got that five fish limit and you can legally keep those big ones, you know, me being there to coach them and saying, you know, this is a really good one to put back. Let's put this one back. We can catch some smaller ones. Um, let's leave those big ones to, to let somebody else catch them and experience it, get that genetic strain, all of that. It's so important. It's just amazing. You know, like I, I, you know, you, when you're a kid, you fish for sunnies and bluegills, crappies, whatever. Uh, and then as I've gotten older, I still fish for crappies, but I just haven't gotten excited about bluegills. It's just, it just hasn't been something that I've said, yes, I need to go catch bluegills today. But a couple of winters ago, I caught my first 10 and a half inch bluegill through the ice. And I literally, when I saw it come up in the hole, 
I was like a six year old again. And I dropped down to my knees. I went shoulder deep to scoop that thing out, make sure I wasn't going to lose that fish. And, you know, my eyes were as big as dinner plates. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. You know, and I was at an ultralight rod and, and, you know, light gear. So it was a fun fight. You know, they fight hard. And when we fished with Garrett, we didn't catch any 10 inchers, but we caught a lot around that nine inch mark. And just the size difference with some, when those bluegills, when they get up around that nine, eight and a half, nine, ten, eleven inch mark, just the how much bigger they actually get than some of those small sunnies that I grew up, you know, fishing for off the dock. It's like a completely different species. When you go to take them off and you cannot slide your hand over the, yeah. the dorsal fin of the fish because they're so big and those fish just get so thick then too. And we talk about the hump heads that, you know, they just look differently. They look like freaks of nature. Uh, when and, and people people throw around the term one pound bluegill a lot. Oh, I caught a 10 incher. It was a pounder. I tell you what, get a scale like the one that I use. It's a postal scale. I got it from the post office and it will weigh to uh, a tenth of an ounce, a tenth of an ounce. Wow. So, you, I mean, you can really see exactly what that fish is going to weigh and to break that pound mark is a big, big deal. But on the other hand, too, you don't have to know that. Yeah. You can just say, you know what, I caught a really big bluegill. And and we need to get in more into that mindset, too, as anglers, that if somebody comes in and they, I'll give you an example. The other day at the uh, public access, a, a guy had stopped me, and he was telling me about this lake that we were on that he had grown up on. And he had said, you know, when I, I, when I was a kid, I caught a 65-inch muskie on this lake. It would have beaten the state record. And he said, there's a, there's a picture of me holding it up above my head as a teenager and the tail touched the ground. And, you know, I don't know where the picture is. It got lost. And, and you know what I said? <laughs> I didn't say, nope. Got lost. That, <laughs> nope, that did not happen. That did not, not only because even as a teenager, you're not going to one hand a 65-inch muskie above your head. That just, you know, us talking about the weights of fish. Uh, but I, I and I could have just really chastised him over it. But I said, you know what? I bet that was a really nice fish that you caught. Yeah. And just acknowledge it. Yeah. You don't have to be. You don't have to be the judge and jury on this. When he goes, hey, I caught a big fish. Hey, I caught an eight pound bass. You don't have to say no. It wasn't an eight pound bass. You can just say. I bet that was a really nice fish that you caught. Congratulations. That's a problem with social media these days. There's so much bickering yeah. about everything, whether it's fish sizes <laughs> or politics or wearing wearing masks. You know, the nice thing about yeah. fishing in the summer on hot days, masks aren't political anymore. When you're, <laughs> when you're in the boat, you can wear them and, and nobody uh, argues with you about it. Um, you know, that, that brings up so many good points. And we've gotten more and more into just we'll measure the fish. It's always horizontal holds now. We, there's yeah. so much mm -hmm. catch and release on, uh, on the big fish. Uh, we've, we've, I think as anglers in general, we've gotten so much more uh, educated maybe about uh, taking care of these fish and the importance of protecting these resources. So uh, there's still some education that needs to be done out there. The Quality Bluegill Initiative, I think, is a, is a great start for some of those smaller panfish. And just, you know, I, I fished for them my whole life and I, you know, never really targeting big ones, but I didn't really know how important it was to protect some of those big fish before I started talking to Garrett and some of these other guys about that. So uh, there's definitely some more education that needs to be done, but I think we're, we're on the right track. And um, you're obviously into education as a teacher. Do you, uh, do you get to take kids out as part of your curriculum there, Jason? Uh, not really as part of the curriculum. I do 
uh, fish education in my classroom, hmm. uh, but it's a little difficult to do it because I teach kindergarten. Oh yeah, and I've got <laughs> typically you know anywhere from twenty to twenty-four students in my class. For me to line up, you know, let's say twenty-two kindergartners to go out fishing, uh, that's a lot. That's if you've ever fished with a kindergartner, a five or six year old before, just one, one, one is a lot. That's right. Okay? You need one of those so, fish, fish ponds in the school, I think. Yeah, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. But I, I do uh, fish week every, every year uh, where we're talking, everything is, every subject integrates fishing into it because this is, you know, kids up here, this is their heritage. Yeah. This is what they've grown up with. There are very few kids that I ever have come through class that haven't had some association with angling. So really it's, it's taking that background knowledge that they already have and just expanding upon it. And it's not about trophy fish or anything, anything like that. Sometimes it's telling a story about fishing and that, I mean, that simple task for a kindergartner is very, very meaningful in terms of their education. Well, with, with more and more uh, COVID-related activities going outdoors, maybe the classroom needs to be on a pontoon or a, num- or a dock or some, somewhere where you can socially distance and still give some education. What, what's going on? Are you think you're going to be in a classroom again th- this fall? Or what Boy, do you think is going to happen? I get asked that every day, but I, honestly, I do. Uh, the Minnesota Department of Education released a statement a couple of weeks ago that I, I think a lot of people were looking for a lot more validity in it in terms of what actually was going to happen in the fall. Uh, it really told us what we already know, and that is we're either going to be in the classroom, distance learning, or a combination of the two. We already knew that. Did, but uh, did you Tim do Walls, some, Sorry, did you do some distance learning with, with kindergartners? How did that work? Some, we did tons of it. I mean, that was every day. Uh, I'm so fortunate in the district that I teach in, uh, Neva School District number 308, which is also the school that I attended as a kid, grew up in and, and graduated from that now, you know, being one of those role models in that district, so blessed. Uh, but we have um, a really good education program, really great academics. Uh, we've got one-to-one devices for every kid in our school. Oh, cool. Even starting in pre-kindergarten. So uh, we sent home uh, in the elementary iPads and the high schoolers have uh, Chromebooks and we knew that they needed that to learn. So we knew that there's going to be some loss with this, that we would have devices that would get broken or damaged. In the end, there are actually fewer devices broken and damaged than had the kids been in school. <laughs> because if they're in school and they're transporting it, even in my classroom, just from, sure. say, their, their storage cubby to their seat, if they drop it, they're dropping it on a tile floor. If they're out in the hallway, it's a terrazzo floor. If they drop it at home, it's on the carpet. So really, uh, it wasn't as bad as anybody had predicted in terms of that. Uh, student partici- participation was really good. Um, did a lot of time, screen time like you and I are right now, but I would have uh, one kindergartner, two kindergartners. We'd do class meetings several times a week. Uh, probably my favorite, favorite incident from all of this was uh, one of my very f- first Zoom meetings. And I was reluctant to use it until they started using the password. Then I was totally okay with it and pass- password protecting those meetings. Um, but I had a student that announced to us, he said, uh, hey, I... Uh, we're remodeling my bedroom. And I said, that's a great vocabulary word. What does, what does remodel mean? And he shared with us, uh, we're painting the walls and I'm getting a new bed. So it was one of the later Zoom meetings that he says, Mr. Durham, I wanted to announce to the class, I'm Zooming 
from my new bed. And you could see his, his bedroom had been redone and everything. Well, anyway, it was right around Easter. We were doing a unit on bunnies. I mean, kindergarten, yep, we're learning about bunnies right around Easter. And I had this game they were going to play where I had a magician's hat. And I had all these sight words that were laminated on construction paper. And I pulled the word out of the hat, and the kids would simply have to read it. But if I pulled the word poof out, they had to jump up and down like a bunny. You know, as adults, we go, ah, it's pretty simple. For kindergartners, they're like, yeah, let's do this. So uh, I, I pull, pull out some sight words, and I pull the first word, poof. And what does the student start doing? He starts jumping up and down on his bed. So I address it right away. And I say, hey, I just want you to make sure that you're being safe. That's our number one school rule, school-wide. Be safe. It's all-encompassing, covers a lot. And I said, I want you to make sure you're being safe and that your parents are okay with you jumping up and down on your bed. And you see 18 kindergartners, the light bulb go off in their head and they take off running for their bedrooms because they all wanna jump up and down on their beds. So now it's so funny because I'm pulling the sight words and these kids have their faces glued to the iPad, you know, is the look. And then I pull poof and the whole screen lights up. It's like the bass dropping at the club and the whole screen just starts moving with these five and six year olds jumping up and down on their beds and laughing and smiling. And I tell you what, for anybody that was working or teaching or learning from home to just see that sight, there's no way you couldn't smile or laugh witnessing that. Ah, that's great. That's great. All right. Well, before we let you go here, Jason, we've got to do something. Now, I, I, uh, you maybe saw it. I recently uh, just put out our last show with Darren Amundsen of Fish Donkey. And uh, so I had, I had a, a co- trivia contest for him, and we didn't, get, we didn't have time to do it with Darren. So you're getting the trivia okay. meant, meant for Darren at Fish Donkey. So this is more than you ever wanted to know, more than you ever wanted to know about donkeys. Jason. I was hoping it wasn't geography or something (laughs) like that, because I'm terrible at that. Well, during World War I, donkeys were used for A, bomb-sniffing donkeys, B, bomber pilots, seems legit, C, rescue animals that could be eaten if necessary, or highly trained covert spies. More than you want. You're, You're saying A? Um, I'm going to give you a hint. It's not A. (laughs) Well, we're definitely not going with B. (laughs) Then I'm going to go with the one uh, where they could be eaten. That is correct answer. They were rescue animals that could be eaten if necessary. More than you have you have you eaten donkey before? I have not, but I'm assuming I've eaten horse because I've had a lot of fast food in my life. So. I wouldn't be surprised if I've had something in that family. Have you eaten donkey? You kind of no, but I tell you what, there's a tortilla chip that they've got at the grocery store here that are called donkey chips that are unbelievable. (laughs) Really? All right. Well, more than you ever wanted to know about donkeys. There you go, uh, Jason Durham. Hey, where can people find you if they want to jump in a boat with you and and have you uh, take them out for crappie fishing or walleyes or something? You know, easiest thing, I could give you my phone number, but you're not going to write it down. You're going to forget it anyway. I'll put easiest it on the screen thing. right here, too. Oh, you can do that. It's area sure. code 218-252-2278. Uh, of course, you can find me online. It's go 
fish-guides.com or you can just Google it, Park Rapids Area Fishing Guides. I'm going to come up. Of course, find me and follow me on social media. There's always something going on. Here's what I don't do on social media, um, Instagram or Facebook. I don't post anything political. Um, we don't talk about religion. Um, the only thing I want, I'm not going to post what I ate for dinner. How about that? <laughs> what I am going to put up there is something that's amazing, something that's funny, something that's going to make somebody smile because, you know, just kindness and a, and a good attitude, a good heart. Everybody should experience that and feel that every day. So uh, you're not going to find a bunch of trivial tripe on there. It's going to be something that's meaningful. I think it's illegal not to post political stuff on Facebook now, isn't it? That's what it seems like when you <laughs> scroll through social media. Very good. People need more stuff like that, the good stuff on social media. Thank you for doing that. And uh, Jason Durham, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brett. I was, I was a delight. This has been the Finding Fins Fishing Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Find us online at findingfins.com and make sure to check out our sponsors. They're pretty cool. Devil's Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Haybell Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Haybell Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybellheights.com. That's haybellheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devil's Lake today. As we all navigate through the tough times of 2020, finding new ways to enjoy summer has become a way of life. If you're searching for the perfect getaway this summer, look no further than the walleye capital of the world, Lake of the Woods. Fish the Rainy River, Big Traverse Bay, and don't forget you can still experience the uniqueness of the Northwest Angle. For your best chance to catch big fish, go where the big fish are, Lake of the Woods. Plan your trip at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. If Trophy Lake Trout and Monster Northern Pike are on your list this summer, book a trip to Tazan Lake Lodge in northwestern Saskatchewan. Everything from numbers to big fish. See pictures, videos, and more at TazanLake.com. This is quite the fishery. Our five-star chef will feed you well after a day of chasing giants on Tazan Lake. Dream come true. Get rates, dates, and more of what you can expect. It can be the best fish you ever had in your life. At TazanLake.com. That's TazanLake.com. Tazan Lake Lodge is a proud partner of Tourism Saskatchewan. Hunt, fish, conserve, repeat. That's the mission here at Sporting Journal Radio, and if you love the outdoors as much as we do, show it off with new wildlife-themed gear from the Sporting Journal Radio store. From hoodies to hats, coffee mugs, wildlife prints, and you can even make your phone stand out with a new case sporting some high-quality wildlife photography. Go to sportingjournalradio.com and click on Store. We have a huge selection of gear with new items being added every week. Powered by Shopify, which is trusted by over 1 million businesses and offering a variety of ways to pay, including PayPal. Shop now at sportingjournalradio.com.